Hi, I'm Sarah Baker. Welcome to Mama Stories. I created Mama Stories after seeing how impactful sharing stories can be in overcoming the challenges of motherhood. I am where I am today because of the stories of so many amazing strong mamas. And I want to share that with anyone I can. So follow along to laugh, cry, and be empowered. Welcome to the show. Today we have Vienna, um, and Vienna is with us from San Diego, right? Yes, San Diego. Sunny San Diego. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Vienna, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are? So, um, like you said, my name is Vienna, um, and I am the founder of The Cunt Sultant, your vagina's consultant, as well as a holistic reproductive health practitioner. So essentially, I teach people who have menstrual cycles how to chart and interpret their menstrual cycles, um, particularly for a fertility awareness-based method, but generally just like how to know your body a little bit better, how to tap into information that is available but maybe not made available to you because educational systems are terrible, and just, you know, in general, things about the female anatomy in particular and how it's not just a whole big mystery down there. Yeah, man, I... I actually was just talking to my mother-in-law this morning um, and I was telling her I was going to interview you and she was saying how cool it is that people talk about this stuff now because when she was a kid, she was just put in a room, they played a video and she even said, she's like, I'm surprised I even knew how to have a baby. (laughs) Like no one really told me what that whole thing was down there. And yes, you said lack of education. I would agree. I think it's fear. People don't want to talk about it and Mm -hmm. people probably don't want to learn about it. So I'm glad that you have learned about it and are able to share. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I I mean, to your point, exactly. I know um, women in my family, like I think my grandmother, there's a story where she had to like go to the library to get a book to find out what sex was because no one had really ever told her about it. Um, And then my mom, like getting, my mom got her period really young. She was nine years old. And the only thing that she, she thought she was dying as you would if you're nine. Right. Mm -hmm. And no one had told her. And she went to her mom and her mom said, my grandmother was like, oh, well now you're old enough to have babies. And she was like, what do I do with this information? I'm nine. (laughs) So yeah, it's like, it's a historical trend. Right. But Mm -hmm. also it's not like all those things are gone. Unfortunately, there's all kinds of misinformation about our bodies that exist to this very day. We still have a terrible lack of sexual education in general. And, you know, I think probably we all at some point got basic reproductive biology, but not in a way that made sense to us, like applicable to our lives. Yeah. Kind of like math, you know, like in school, like they teach you math and algebra, but they don't teach you how to do accounting. It's like you yes. have all the pieces in one place, but it's not, um, it's not applicable to your actual life circumstance. So for me, being a person who just was always interested in my body and the functionings of my body as a female bodied person, just naturally, it wasn't really something that was bred into me. My family was kind of like neutral on the whole topic. Um, but I remember like learning about reproductive biology and learning about ovulation, but I didn't understand it at all until I reached my like early twenties and found out about fertility awareness and then Mm -hmm. was able to be like, Oh, it's ovulation is a specific event that happens at this certain time in my menstrual cycle. 
It doesn't just happen willy nilly. Um, you can't just get pregnant when someone sneezes on you, like all this stuff. Right. It took like an embarrassing, a long period of time for me to fully understand how my body, like the basic functioning of my body worked. Mm -hmm. And I was a person who'd go out and like look for information on my own. So yeah, I, I, I think, um, there's a lot of reasons we're not taught these things, but at the end of the day, we're just not taught them. Right. No, we're not. And in, would you say at that time then when you were 20 is when you were like, okay, I need to become the expert, the consultant on all this. <laughs> yeah. So, um, my whole like story, right. Is, um, like I said, I've been interested in this sort of topic for a very long time. I think when I was like seven years old, I wanted to be a midwife. I didn't really know what that was, but somehow <laughs> I came across it. Um, and like the idea of like working with women and working with herbs and, you know, the, the mysteries of childbirth or whatever you think at seven um, was really like appealing to me. And then as I got older, I found it really important personally to like know the clinical names of my female genital parts. You know, like I wanted to, I wanted to use the word vagina and vulva and know the difference between those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the internet became a thing when I was a young person. So I started to just Google stuff, which led to all kinds of interesting information. I bet. Um, <laughs> and then I kind of had, a. I mean, I can, I definitely have people in high school I can refer you to, but this idea of like, oh, people have been asking me questions about their vagina for a very long time. So I would, you know, I was always really interested in sex, even when I wasn't having it. I just wanted to know about it. So I'd go out and like research about it. I was very pro masturbation for all my friends and like buying people vibrators and all that stuff. Um, But the decisions I made as a young person, as I started to become sexually active was I wanted to be responsible with my body and I wanted to be responsible with my reproduction. And from that standpoint, the information I had available to me the best way to do that was through um, the hormonal birth control pill or the pill as we all call it. Right. Yeah. Um, oral contraception. So <laughs> I decided to go on the pill when I became sexually active one, because it seemed like a very reliable way to avoid pregnancy, which I was terrified of, but also because I hoped it would give me boobs. It, it did not give me <laughs> boobs, but <laughs> it was like definitely part of the decision. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So I was on the pill for a a few years and I felt like I was a pretty well-educated pill user. Like I knew one, how to take it. And I was, you know, I was a good taker of the pill. Um, And I also knew that it suppressed my natural menstrual cycle to some degree. So I was aware of that fact, um, but I wasn't fully aware of like how it worked in particular. So a few years, like, you know, my, my early 20s, I was in a stable relationship, but not interested in getting pregnant at all. But I started to like, I moved to Southern California. I started to get more involved in like more alternative healing, witchy kind of groups. And I was just like, you know what? There's all this talk about cycling with the moon. And I'm just curious about what my cycle is actually doing underneath the pill. So I'm going to go off the pill. I think I can manage this, um, but I want some resources because I really don't want to get pregnant. And I wonder what I can find out to support myself. And that's how I came to fertility awareness. Someone told me about the book, Taking Charge of Your Fertility, which is like the Bible of fertility awareness. And I read, if not the whole thing, it's very thick, most of it. And it blew my entire mind because I, again, like I said earlier, I didn't really understand what ovulation was. And yeah. I'd been menstruating for like 10 years at that point. Um, I was already like kind of tracking my period, but I just didn't know ovulation. I didn't know you could figure out when it happened. I didn't know that it was noticeable. I just thought it was like random chance that you got pregnant at any given time. 
Um, so I was very elated by this information and also deeply furious that it had taken so long for anyone to explain this to me. Yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of how I ended up there. And I went off the pill. I started charting for a minute and then I got really freaked out that I couldn't do it on my own. And so I got a non-hormonal IUD. Um, I was on that for a minute. And then I was like, you know what? It's just time to fully commit to this because I really believe in it. I really want to explore what fertility awareness would mean for me. And I also want to share this with other people. So it was like a journey through several different birth control methods, um, which I still believe are very important. I think, you know, there's a time and a place for most things. And contraception is completely part of that. So that all being said, I feel like I was a good, I had a good experience on these other methods, mm-hmm. but I'm, um, I'm, I'm still using fertility awareness. I'm a fertility awareness educator and yeah, I'm happy to keep doing this method for the time being. So you, when you say fertility awareness, I think yeah, it's cool. Cause you're looking at that in two points. Cause you're saying how to prevent it if you're not ready or not interested in having children or Mm -hmm. how to better know your body so you can get pregnant? You do both? Yeah, yeah. So to just define it, in case people don't know, um, a fertility awareness-based method, um, there's a whole bunch of them. So it's like under that umbrella. Um, Natural family planning is another way that people talk about it. But typically, natural family planning is attached to a religious organization, primarily the Catholics. Um, Fertility awareness comes out of natural family planning, but typically they're secular methods. Um, So they're not attached to any particular religion or belief system. So I am trained to teach the Justice method of fertility awareness, which is a symptothermal method. And all that means is we're looking at cervical mucus symptoms, like cervical mucus discharge that you see in your underwear or when you wipe after going to the bathroom, um, as well as your basal body temperature. So your temperature first thing in the morning when you wake up. So we're all, those are our two primary signs. Okay. We also look at um, cervical positioning. So inserting a finger into the vagina to determine where your cervix is at any given point in your cycle. So those would be the three that we're looking at primarily. And most fertility awareness-based methods look at some combination of those. So a lot of us are looking at cervical mucus, basal body temperature. Those are kind of the top two. Some methods bring in um, hormonal testing as part of that as well, um, different different biomarkers. But typically, it would be cervical mucus, basal body temperature, cervical positioning, and then you know if you have access to um, hormone tests, those would be things that people typically would use in a symptothor- in a in a fertility awareness based method. There's also just to say like people often confuse them with the rhythm method. Okay. And so the rhythm method is a natural form of birth control and natural, you know, is a term that what does it even mean? Um, but <laughs> so it's like under the um it's not it is not really lumped under fertility awareness methods from people who teach those methods, but it's in like this other category of calendar-based methods. And so those use like an algorithm or a calculation to determine your probability of being fertile in any given cycle based on previous data. And the main difference is, and this is like a really big thing because those of us are like, fertility awareness is not the rhythm method, um, is that fertility awareness is based on in the moment actual data that you're collecting on a daily basis, whereas the rhythm method or a calendar-based method is based on retroactive information. Um, Mm. So like I said, there's like a calculation. And so you're kind of, you're just like placing 
like a template over what you think should be happening versus what is actually happening. Yeah. Um, and so people end up pregnant more like unwantedly or unplanned on the rhythm method simply because our menstrual cycles are not static. They're very dynamic and they respond based on what's happening in our lives and our bodies. So you get a higher efficacy rate in achieving or avoiding pregnancy with a fertility awareness-based method simply because you're going off of what's actually happening as opposed to what you think might be happening. Okay, so I feel like taking a birth control pill every day is already a really hard task (laughs) for most people. So do people, I mean, is it hard to do that fertility awareness? Like if you are trying to prevent or if you are trying to achieve pregnancy, it's like, at, you know, measuring the temperature, checking the cervix, like that seems like a lot. So is it, is it simpler to do if you get like into a rhythm? Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's not a method. I'm going to say this up top. It's not a method for everyone. Okay. I think, I think the knowledge that comes with fertility awareness is for everyone because essentially what we're doing is educating you on how your body works. That information, I think, every single person on the face of this planet should have, particularly those of us who have menstrual cycles, but just like everyone, right? Yeah. Um, Now, what you want to do with that information is a highly personal decision and really depends on a lot of factors. So to your point on like, this is more involved than taking the pill or like way more involved than getting an IUD inserted. Absolutely. No sugar coating. But like anything else we do in our lives, it becomes a habit. So if it depends on like your motivation to do the method, mm-hmm. your education around the method, the support you have to continue doing the method um, in your personal life. Um, those are all really important factors. Um, it's so it be, I would say it's like akin to learning a new language or driving a car. Okay. Those are both things that when you first start learning them, it's like overwhelming potentially, or you just like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do this. And this is really challenging. And how can this become part of my life? Like, we can all think back to when we first started to learn to drive. It was kind of terrifying and, you know, just nerve wracking. So while they're very different things, the more you practice it and the more you incorporate it into your daily life, the less big of a deal it'll be. So when we're talking about how you observe, for the method I teach, essentially you're just checking for cervical mucus externally. So you're not going inside the vagina to check for it. You're wiping across the okay. vulva, um, before and after going to the bathroom. Um, and basically anytime your pants are down, is kind of one way to say it. So it's like any opportunity you have to check for cervical mucus, take it, but it's just a few minutes a day really okay. when it comes down to it. So you're just like going about your business, you're checking for cervical mucus. Um, in the initial stages, will it feel like a really cumbersome thing to incorporate for a lot of people? Absolutely. But what we find is that when you have the support and the education you need to help you be successful and also you have the motivation it quickly becomes just like a regular part of your everyday life yeah um so you're looking for it you're looking at it throughout the day you're kind of making a mental note or an actual physical note and then at the end of the day you chart whatever the most fertile um sign of the day was (laughs) excuse me so we can get into what that is but like you're not charting every single thing you saw you're just like picking the ones that were like the most fertile on the scale of fertility and writing that down and then going about your day. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's actually very simple, but it's, you know, again, like the startup is a little bit intense. Well, and I will say for me, taking birth control has just never really worked. And 
I got really sick when I was younger and I was sexually active and in high school. And thankfully my mom got me birth control, but it was like awful. Cause I tried, this is when I always say this is when birth control became cool, but I think it was just <laughs> cause that's when birth control became cool in my generation. Not, I'm sure it was cool before that, but we had like patches and shots and mm-hmm. my doctor was like, here, it was like, she opened up her lab coat and was like, which one do you want? <laughs> and yeah. I was like, I don't know. I want the easier one. And of course mm-hmm. there was like, well, this one makes you gain weight. Well, this one, this. And so I tried a patch and I was ill, like bedridden ill. And oh. when you take off the patch, it still is in your system for like 24 hours. or 40. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking I was going to die and that it wasn't worth it to have sex because I also didn't know how to have sex then. So it wasn't like it was super yeah. enjoyable on, on my end, but, um, Then I tried the birth control pill. Anyways, long journey. I went to like this really low dose hormone that started to work well for me and I didn't have any symptoms. And then it got recalled for like cancer side effects. And so Mm. finally I was like, I'm just not going to take it. And I have thankfully um, controlled my fertility without it. But um, I I do feel like a lot of that is luck. And I obviously, I don't think that that is a viable method for a lot of people and I wouldn't recommend it, but I will say something like this, like fertility awareness and knowing how my body works makes more sense to me because for me, just that pill, like just did not work and the fear of it didn't work. Yeah. And I, your situation is very common. There's a lot of people who go on hormonal birth control and find it to have really adverse side effects. And we have like for a long time, it was very anecdotal, but we do have a lot more information now and more studies that show, you know, typically we think of the idea of like you gain weight, like that's seen as a very typical quote unquote normal side effect. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also like loss of libido are those are, I'd say like the top two that people would think of, um, which then begs the question, well, if you're don't want to have sex, why are you even (laughs) on the, what's the point of the pill? Um, But then also mood disorders. So, you know, depression is actually now seen as um, a side effect of hormonal birth control. There's there was like a major study done in, I believe, Sweden. Um, Could be getting that wrong. But a few years ago that essentially showed that the pill causes depression or there's like a link between depression and the pill. And a lot of people were experiencing that regardless of the study. Right. And going and reporting those symptoms to their doctors And their doctors just wouldn't believe them. So there is, I mean, I I would say there's like a fair amount of gaslighting that goes into people um, reporting their symptoms from birth control to their providers Mm -hmm. simply because it's not listed on the packet. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for that, there's many reasons that that happens, I think. Um, And I think often like we should trust that our providers want what's best for us. And um, they're not trying to be malicious on purpose. And the idea you know, we live in a society that views unwanted pregnancy in a very negative, negative way. So everything from like, there's an appropriate time and an appropriate person who can become pregnant. Um, for example, like if you're, you know, a young black teenager, you get pregnant. That seems like a really, really bad thing versus if you're like a middle-class white woman married to a man Mm -hmm. in your early thirties, that's like the appropriate time to get pregnant. Right. So like those there's, we have that where there's like um, differences in economic and racial and all these different things that say these are appropriate people to get pregnant and are not. And then all the way to like the access to abortion is so um, 
hard <laughs> in this country, for lack of a better word, right? It's very difficult to obtain in some parts of our country, even though it's legal, as well as there's incredible stigma attached to it. Yeah. And so, shame and yeah, and sh- yeah absolutely. So mm-hmm. we, the cost of getting pregnant is really big and depending on who we are. So there's a lot of reasons that we would say like, oh, our primary concern with contraception is how effective it is at preventing pregnancy and putting everything else aside in the name of preventing pregnancy, which, which goes to the, all the way to the extreme of like impacting your quality of life. Right. So like, well, you're not, uh, you might be depressed and not want to have sex and you've gained a bunch of weight that makes you feel terrible in your body and you know, (laughs) something, whatever else, those things are all happening for you, but at least you're not getting pregnant. And so putting it as like, that's like the highest goal we can achieve instead of being like, how can we have a contraceptive that helps you live a better life? Like how can your contraception improve your sex life? Because that's the reason we're on contraception is in the first place, generally speaking. Um, There are other reasons that people go on the pill. um, And, you know, that's, that's kind of a separate topic, tangential. Um, But, you know, in general, we're going, we're using a contraceptive because we want to have sex that does not result in a baby. So it's recreational, quote unquote, right? Yeah. So um, I, I often feel like that is not part of the conversation of like, is your contraception improving your sex life? And I don't think we usually view it that way, but that is one way to view contraception. So for everyone, like figuring out what those things are that matter to you the most about your birth control is really important. Um, for some people, efficacy will be number one. For other people, um, the man, the amount of control they have over it will be number one. Um, the you know the way it affects their sex drive, the you know how how much work it takes for them to remember to take it or not. So it's it's very various. I guess just to say, like the reasons people use birth control are many. Yes, for sure. Well, and I think. <clears throat> To your point, like having that more open conversation about what it is, I think so often, I mean, we've talked about this before and I have feel like I've had this conversation with other guests too, but we just we just don't want to talk about that. We don't want to know mm-hmm. why you're getting birth control. We don't want to talk about that it could cause a baby. We don't want to say that it could cause an abortion. We don't want to say, like we just, there's all these paths that we just don't want to open up the, you know, curtains on and really discuss. Mm-hmm. And so then the other issue is that, Maybe someone who, you know, is wanting to have a good sex life and just wants to have recreational sex isn't getting asked those questions because no one wants to talk about it. Even the person maybe even taking the medicine doesn't want to talk about it. They don't want to say, here's why or here's what I want, you know, and try to like narrow down exactly what they want from a birth control because having recreational sex isn't really something that's you know, prided on. Yeah. And it, I mean, even, I think, I think we've come a long way. I mean, it depends, I guess, on the circles that you're running in. I run in some pretty, um, freaky circles. No, but it's like, <laughs> this idea of like what we're talking about. And you're totally right though. I think there's, there's so much shame that's connected to our sexuality and therefore our reproduction. Those two things are like very linked, obviously. Um, and there's so much shame attached to it that sometimes we, yeah, you're right. We don't want to look at it too hard. We just want to like get the thing and get out. Yeah. Um, And I don't think that serves any of us. Right. So then I am someone who's big into like introspection and figuring out what it is you want and how do you, how does that manifest in your life and how can you um, ask for what you want or how, how can you 
um, you know, yeah, ask for your needs to be met and see if you can get them met and knowing that you're allowed to have those things. Right. So there's a whole other piece of, you know, how women, people socialized as women are brought up to suffer and to put our needs at the bottom of the barrel. And especially as mothers, right. I think a lot of women experience that where, um, when you have a baby, it becomes about the baby and it doesn't become about you. So I know a lot of women will speak or pregnant people will speak about pregnancy being like, Ooh, everyone was like, wanted to know how I was doing. And there was a lot of like tenderness and care for me. And then as soon as the baby came, it was all about the baby. And, you know, people will report that during pregnancy sometimes where, or during birth, where the shit, the focus was entirely on the baby and not as much on the birthing person. And of course, like everyone's experiences shift in that realm, but Having children requires a lot of energy and attention to the children, of course, but Mm. oftentimes the mother is then left as like the last person who gets care. And, you know, there's, I think, a lot to be said to the idea of mother should be the top of the pile, especially in households that, you know, tend to be more heteronormative, where the female partner takes on the responsibility of not only the child care, but also, you know, making sure the household is taken care of. Um, So in that, it's like it's we're told not to advocate for our needs and not to advocate for our desires and our pleasure. And especially when we become mothers, like, don't talk about sex anymore because you're not like you're not allowed to be sexual anymore. How dare you? You got the baby. Now you can't do it anymore. Yes. And that's just simply false. Right. Well, and I think, (laughs) yes, it is false. And I think you said that perfectly. Uh, what I, what it kept making me think back to is when you were saying, you know, it doesn't matter if you've gained weight, if you are, you know, depressed and if you've lost your sex drive, you know, this is the pill to prevent you from having babies. It's kind of, it's the same thing. It's like, it doesn't matter how you feel, <laughs> yeah. but if this is what you want, then this is, sorry, this is what you have. And so it's even, even starts when we're younger or when we become sexually active and we are first introduced to this form of birth control. It's the same. It's the same messaging that happens mm-hmm. forever. You know, like sorry, you you chose to have sex. This is your option to not have a baby. And it's yeah. kind of like, ugh, really? Is that our only option? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think we're often presented this idea of choice that is a false. Um, suggestion of choice. Like you were saying earlier, you went to your doctor and she opened her lab coat and she's like, here's all your options for birth control. And really, she gave you maybe two options, even though there was like seven different products offered to you, you might have had a hormonal option and a non-hormonal option. And really, they break down to be like, those are kind of our categories for hormonal birth control. And then when it comes to the, it then goes down to like, what's the delivery method? Mm. So hormonal birth control there's a variety of synthetic hormones that make up um, hormonal birth control, but typically most of them consist of a synthetic estrogen or estrin and a synthetic progesterone or progestin. And I say that because our bodies make hormones called estrogen and progesterone, and those are naturally occurring hormones, and those are good hormones. They're like very important to our functioning as human beings for our entire health, not just for our fertility, but like literally for the building of our entire bodies. And then we have synthetic forms of those same hormones, like I said, estrins and progestins. And the reason we have synthetic forms comes down to the fact that you can patent those forms and you can't patent the naturally occurring hormones because they're naturally occurring. So the synthetic hormones are very similar to 
our naturally occurring hormones, our bioidentical hormones, um, but they're, they're changed just enough to make them just different enough that you can patent it. Um, so it, it behaves similarly to the hormones in our bodies, but not the exact same way. So that's where people run into uh, a lot of the problems with hormonal birth control. It's because they're injecting a synthetic hormone into their body, which is doing a bunch of stuff. And one of them is just that your body actually doesn't know how to handle those hormones exactly because they look kind of like an estrogen. They look kind of like a progesterone, but they're not quite that. So that leads to a whole slew of other problems. Um, so yeah, so, so essentially like if you have the, if you have the pill, the patch, um, the Mirena IUD, the hormonal IUD, the implant, all of those are like four different methods, right? Yeah. But they're really the same method. <laughs> like there's like the, the compounds, the different, like the way that the hormones are made up is a little bit different, but essentially you're, you're getting the same thing. You don't have like a lot of variety in the hormones that you're getting. It's just like dosages. Interesting. Whereas then you have like other non-hormonal options and then you actually have a little bit more variety there. So you have barriers to so things like condoms or diaphragms or cervical caps um, or even uh, what's the word I want? The um, I can't remember <laughs> like um, I can't remember the last one, but so those are all options. And then you have, um, you know, a non-hormonal IUD, which would be inserted into the uterus in the same way, but they're made out of copper and not, they don't release a hormone, although they can have a hormone-like effect. And then you'd have fertility awareness-based methods. You'd have withdrawal. Um, you know, then there's people who use herbal methods, things like that. So, so there's a lot of like, there's like the hormonals, there's the non-hormonals, there's the herbals. Interesting. It's when you kept saying non-hormonal, this is how educated I am. Okay. And I'm 30 years old. I thought you were saying that there was like a pill that didn't have any hormones in it. And I thought, how uh, does yeah. that work this whole time? And then when you just described it, I was like sinking in my seat, like, Oh, oops, I probably no. should have known. That's what she was talking about. It was like no. the traditional methods of condoms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you have like you have other ways to prevent sperm from meeting egg. <laughs> Got it. Okay. That, yeah. So, and then when we're using hormonal methods, what those are doing is they are basically, they're making us unwell enough to not be fertile. So fertility and health are essentially the same thing for better, or for worse. Take it like, that's just a fact. Like if we're fertile, we're healthy. And if we are healthy, we're fertile. Sometimes there's exceptions to that, but generally speaking, that's the truth. And the other part about that is a fertile body will sometimes become pregnant. And that's mm. just a fact. Those yeah. are just facts. I didn't make the rules. That's just <laughs> what happens. Um, if you're having, of course, like the kind of sex that could get you pregnant. So that's a fact. What you want to do with that information is entirely up to you. But when we take synthetic hormones, the way they work is by destroying our endocrine system enough, suppressing certain parts of our endocrine system enough to make us unhealthy enough to get pregnant and carry a pregnancy. Okay. Interesting. That's okay. This is where I had a lot of questions. Sorry. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> no. So, I mean, that's, that, that is essentially how they work and that's the design. And so like it went all the way back to like, so for example, if you're taking, um, you know, the, your run of the mill pill, um, you'll have a pack of pills. You'll have 28 pills in a pack. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and 21 of those pills will be hormonal. And then, you know, seven of those pills will be sugar pills. 
And when you get to that sugar pill week, that's when you have your quote unquote period, which isn't actually a period. It's a withdrawal bleed or it's not menstruation. It's a withdrawal bleed. Mm. You don't actually need to have that withdrawal bleed. Um, it's really just for aesthetics. So the definition of true menstruation is menstruation follows ovulation. So you have to ovulate in order to actually menstruate. And so that's like from a hormonal perspective of how the um, reproductive cycle unfolds. You need those two events to happen. You need ovulation to happen for menstruation to happen. So, you know, there's this, um, there's lots of people who talk about this. Um, like Lara Bryden is one of the people I've heard this from. Um, there's, there's many people who talk about this concept, but essentially like we don't necessarily need to have periods. We don't need to menstruate. It's, we need to ovulate and the byproduct of ovulation becomes menstruation in a way. So Mm. when you're not ovulating, which is when you go on a hormonal method, generally speaking, except perhaps in the case of the Mirena IUD and all other hormonal methods, they are suppressing ovulation there's like some evidence to suggest that you might sometimes be ovulating on the Mirena, but just to say, um, generally speaking, hormonal methods suppress ovulation and ovulation is a hormonal, uh, uh, hormonal event. It is an endocrine system event. It is a naturally occurring good thing that helps your body produce hormones that not only can lead to a potential pregnancy, but can also just lead to the overall health of your body. So, the the synthetic hormones basically shut off your ovaries, shut off ovulation. It doesn't happen anymore. Wow. That's how they're supposed to rule. That's that is exactly how they work. That is that's not a design flaw. That is a design. So then you're not ovulating. So therefore you're not actually menstruating. But when you take that those sugar pills, um, it reduces the synthetic hormone, which then triggers the uterus to just have like a withdrawal bleed. So there's like a drop in synthetic hormones and that will naturally trigger some bleeding. So that's why if you're on the pill, you have these really light site, you have these really light um, menstrual periods. And so this idea of like, oh, the pill lightens your period. Yeah, it does, but it's really not a period anymore. It's a withdrawal bleed. So you don't really need to have that. There's no real hormonal reason for that to occur if you're already shutting off ovulation. But when they first developed the pill, um, you know, back in like the 50s and 60s, women who were used to having menstrual periods as a sign of health, and, you know, they had lots of, there's lots of ideas about menstruation throughout history, and not to say that the 50s was like a time where everyone was like, period power, but (laughs) it wasn't. But this idea of like having a natural, having a cycle, right, we only had natural cycles, we didn't have synthetic hormones yet, but having a regular menstrual period meant you were healthy and also meant you weren't pregnant. So that was like our main biomarker. Right. Then you start giving this pill and they had them like at different durations. So like 60 and 90 days. And they found that it just freaked women out. They're like, I'm not getting a period. Like what's wrong with me? Oh yeah. And so, because there's like, you know, it was a new thing and there had to be education around it. So they basically built in the 28 day cycle and that withdrawal bleed period to make women feel okay about taking the pill. Wow. Um, so it only it really only exists for that reason. Because again, you're not ovulating. You're really not menstruating. My mind is like literally blown. <laughs> I feel <laughs> I mean, like I yeah. should know this. Right. And I didn't. I, I actually have heard a lot of women in my just circle as I grew up, they would say like, oh, I don't even take the sugar pills. I just go on to the next pack. And I used to think that's super unhealthy. You have to have a period. Like you, your body should 
release your period. Mm -hmm. And so it's like it trained me too, because I would advocate to these girls that I was in high school with or a little bit older. And I would say like, no, no, you got, you got to take those because your body needs to release the period. <laughs> yeah, no, and you're totally right. In, in one sense, it's just that it's not necessary because you're not ovulating. But a lot of people have that exact belief that you do because we've, we have grown up now with, you know, what is it like 40 plus years of the pill? I don't know the exact dates when it over that ending at this point, 50 years. So we've had it for a really long time. We've had it for several generations. So it's not even seen as weird anymore, but really the hormonal contraception, the pill in particular, was the first time that we developed a medication to be taken daily by healthy people. Yeah. So what's the risk to, if you know this, uh, I'm sure you do, but so if it suppresses your ovulation, then what is the risk over time? Is that why some birth controls cause cancer is because there is like a suppressed ovulation or do you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it really, it's, yes, it depends on the kind of cancer. So you will get, um, there is a reduced risk, I believe, um, and I could be misquoting this, but my understanding is there when you're taking hormonal birth control, and this is one of the things they tout, you have a reduced risk of uterine and ovarian cancer, um, which are two cancers that you know are very devastating. Obviously, it's cancer, um, and if you have that, if that runs in your family, that might be something that's you know worth it for you for avoiding. Um, but they're rarer. What the pill will do is increase your risk of breast cancer. Mm. That's been documented. And breast cancer is a much more common cancer. Um, so there's pros and cons. And yes, that does have to do with, I don't know if we have like explicit studies on this effect, but we do have studies that show um, hormonal replacement therapy, which uses similar um, synthetic hormones as in um, hormonal birth control, hormonal replacement therapy does lead to higher incidences and risk of breast cancer. So that is definitely part of it. So it's when your body's being exposed to a really high level of synthetic estrogen, which it wouldn't normally be subjected to. And it has to be like even a low dose of synthetic hormone is a high dose of synthetic hormone because you wouldn't naturally be having it in your body anyway. Um, yeah. And it has to be enough to suppress your natural cycling. So Yes, it does. It has, there's a, there are significant health risks associated with using hormonal birth control. Um, however, you'd have to look at like a specific method and then weigh those pros and cons. Mm -hmm. And, and often what I think is infuriating to me and many others is not that like people are using hormonal birth control. It's just that we're not really given informed consent about the risks yeah. and benefits. And like I said earlier, I'm all in favor of people using whatever methods that they think is most appropriate for them at any given time in their life. But I would just prefer that people knew a little bit better what the risks were and what the side effects were so they could decide to like go off of a method quicker if it didn't seem to be working for them. So, yeah. you know, if your sex drive disappears after you start taking the pill and you get depressed and your doctor keeps telling you, no, 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 it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. You'll adjust to it. Um, you know, your concerns aren't that big of a deal in light of like, you know, your risk of pregnancy. And so you carry on and you just feel terrible all the time instead of being like, you could be offered like, well, some, and some doctors definitely do this. We're like, okay, let's try a different method or let's try this. Let's try that. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, like given the way our healthcare system is set up in the U S your doctor only has a limited amount of time to talk with you right. and is trying to like give you the best care they can in that amount of time. 
and the pill is like so readily and easily accessible, I think there's an assumption that we all know how it works. There's an assumption that we all know the risks and benefits. You can read the little pamphlet, Um, but that doesn't always happen. So yeah, it's, there are inherent risks. Absolutely. And just to know there's other options. Like I know for me, I don't have any interest in in taking birth control again just because it's I've had a really negative experience with it. But I also have no interest in having another child because mm-hmm. I have a lot of experience with that. And <laughs> I'll just take the one. Um, and so just knowing that there's options out there where I can know my body and know that that works is is really just eye-opening for me. And I hope anybody who's listening too, just to know like, oh, I can hear this stuff. I can be educated. And now I can make a different decision if that's what makes sense for me. Like if I was taking birth control right now and having the same experience that I had had before and I heard this, I'd be like, okay, done. I want to try just to know my body and see if that works. Um, Which I know is scary because that is obviously a big risk because how you know if it works or not is you potentially get pregnant. And so that's right. Uh, well, so to that point of like the fear, there's like, I also want to be like, yes, there's so much fear that comes up for people when they switch from hormonal to non-hormonal, but like two things. One, every birth control method has a failure rate. Every single one, except like if you get your uterus removed or like your ovaries removed. Right. Yeah. Other than that, like they all have a failure rate, even the pill, even the IUD, um, those, all can potentially fail. Even sometimes a vasectomy can reverse itself. I think that's super rare, but like that has, that can happen. Um, I even heard of a woman who had a uterine ablation. So like she had basically the inside of her uterus cauterized. Um, I I believe it's like a treatment for endometriosis. Okay. So she didn't think she could get pregnant anymore because there was like nothing there. There was no endometrium growing so that there's nothing for a potentially fertilized egg to attach to. And she got pregnant because that little fertilized egg attached to like the one teeny tiny wow. part on like near her cervix that it could actually attach to. So like even that had a risk, right? So um, there's everything has a failure method, one. Yeah. And that is just a fact. And then two, your risk, your risk, right? And that's a whole other conversation around like we talk about pregnancy as if it's a disease. Um, but your risk of pregnancy in any given menstrual cycle is pretty low. So you have like, you, you can't get pregnant any day of your menstrual cycle. You can only get pregnant on the days up to and including ovulation. And so with fertility awareness, we're tracking for cervical mucus. Cervical mucus starts appearing around that time when you're about to ovulate. So it's an indicator that you are now fertile. And if you were to have potentially fertilizing sex, you could potentially become pregnant. So you want to not get semen in your vagina or near your cervical fluid. So that's like, that's what you do. So for some people, that's a few days. For some people, that's a week. It really depends person to person. Um, And the fertility awareness method, the justice method, and many other methods build in a lot of um, uh, time around that period to make sure you're as protected from an unwanted pregnancy as you want to be. So in addition to like observing for cervical mucus, there's a couple of calculations we do just to make sure you're in the safe zone when, and if you want to resume having sex with someone with active semen. Um, that being said, you can also use condoms or other barriers with, um, depends on the method, but with justice, mm-hmm. you're totally welcome to do that. We just make the caveat that 
you know, if you're using a condom or a barrier on a potentially fertile day, that's the only day it could fail because that's the only time you're actually fertile. But at the same time, you actually have greater choice. So, you know, and because people, you know, there's lots of people who just use condoms or just use withdrawal and they're like, it's fine. This works for me. But if you're adding in like a second layer of fertility awareness, then you have like literally fertility awareness, right? So, you know, okay, if I use a condom today and the condom breaks, I know I need to get plan B. Or I know that if we have, if we have any kind of, you know, semen and cervical mucus connecting sexual activity to be like very clinical about it. Um, I could get pregnant on this day. So maybe I'll choose to do something else. And so there's, you know, there's lots of variety in what sexual expression can look like. It doesn't always have to be penis and vagina. There's Mm -hmm. other things we can do. Um, but you can also like choose to use barriers on certain days. Um, if you're in a relationship, you know, monogamous relationship and neither of you have an STD, um, you know, maybe you're not using condoms all the time, but maybe you use them on certain days because you don't want to get pregnant, but you still want to have a certain kind of sex. Um, if you're having sex with multiple partners, you have a, you just have a greater understanding of what's happening in your body and then you can make more informed decisions. And I think that's very, very valuable regardless of like how in depth you want to be with the method itself. Just like having that, like even just that basic understanding of like, I'm fertile, I'm infertile. Yeah. It takes away a lay. It, it like on the one hand where it's like, there's a certain level of fear attached to using a user-based method, right? So you have less of a great, right. A user-based method, they have these, you know, big ranges for efficacy because it depends on how well you use the method. Um, but it also like, on the other hand, gives you a great deal of control because you have more information available to you. So while it can be nerve wracking, it also, if you're, if you're someone who's already like using condoms or withdrawal, it's going to remove a layer of that nerve wracking you're already experiencing because mm-hmm. you'll just know better when and if you're at risk for pregnancy or if you need to take plan B or if you need to like take a pregnancy test. Right. So, so that's really helpful. If you're someone with an irregular menstrual cycle to begin with, you can still use fertility awareness um, because it's tracking what's happening in the moment, as opposed to like what we think should be happening in a typical cycle. Mm -hmm. So in those cycles where you're like, well, I don't really know when my period's coming and maybe there's anxiety around that for a lot of reasons tracking your menstrual cycle using fertility awareness gives you a lot more insight into what's happening and then will like help remove some of that fear and anxiety. Well, and I think for me, when you're describing this, this is women, this is women empowerment. Like this is your body. This is how it works. This is how it's talking to you. Like Mm -hmm. this is such an opportunity to just know and to be confident when you're, you know, having sex with your partner or having sex with, you know, someone else, like where you can say like, nope, I'm not, I'm not fertile right now, or I am fertile right now. I want to be protected or heck I want to continue our family. I want to have a baby, you know, like being able to be empowered to know the decision you're making to me, that already is like, okay, I'm, I want to go down this path. Like I want to look into this just because I just get some sort of like, okay, this is what we're supposed to do as women. Like we're supposed to know our bodies. They are just talking to us every day and our vagina is our is our biggest asset of like what we have and what's working for us right it's pleasure it's it's babies it's all the things and so why not listen to it when it talks to us all the time absolutely I think again going back to like the language metaphor that I mentioned previously this is it's 
like a way I think about this is like you're interpreting your body's language. So you're paying attention to it. So mindfulness, I actually have a teacher, um, Jenny Coos, her Instagram is Wolverine. So she's very fun to follow and she's in Sweden, but she refers to fertility awareness as pussy mindfulness. Mm. So it's like essentially that it's like a mindfulness practice and it's a part of our body that we often don't pay a lot of attention to unless there's something wrong with it. Um, or unless it's in the presence of someone else. So especially as like cisgendered heterosexual women, um, we're not looking at other vaginas or vulvas. We're barely looking at our own. The people who look at them tend to be our partners or our doctor. So therefore it's like in the context of someone else, it's not seen as something that's really a part of your body. It's a little harder to see. Um, you know, we have, there's all these like stories and memes and whatnot about like, you're having period cramps. It means your uterus hates you and it's mad that you didn't have a baby. And like, there's all these <laughs> ideas that our reproductive organs hate us <laughs> is a concept wow. that people talk about a lot. And it's like kind of a, it's a joke too, right? Like it's funny. I completely get it. Like an angry uterus is a very hilarious image and makes a lot of sense for a lot of people's lived experiences, but that's not the case. Your body isn't against you or angry with you although like sometimes it can be right like there's a night that you stayed up all night and you drank too much like your body's like dude we're just yeah help um yeah but like in this context right like having menstrual cramps like having very painful menstruation is actually a sign that something is deeply wrong not that your body hates you but there's something wrong in your system and it's trying to tell you you need help Mm. And so we can choose to, there's a lot of ways we can choose to manage that, right? You can take painkillers to get rid of the pain. You can take the pill to suppress your hormonal functioning. So it'll be less painful and everyone's allowed to choose what works best for them. But what I would say as a holistic practitioner is I would invite you to figure out what the root cause is. Mm. Taking a painkiller or taking hormonal contraception isn't going to solve whatever the problem is underneath it. And that can be a bunch of different things. So I'm not going to Like, I can't tell you exactly what it is. You have to figure it out on your own. Um, But it's not going to solve the root issue. And it's not in your highest and greatest good for your body's functioning. Um, And again, I'm not here to tell you how to manage yourself. But just to say that is actually true and a fact. Um, It might not be easy to figure out what that underlying issue is, unfortunately. But it is a worthwhile endeavor to try and figure it out, I would say. Mm -hmm. So, your body doesn't hate you. Your body as a female body is designed to get pregnant at some point because nature wants us to reproduce. That's like the natural, like fertile, healthy state. But we have, we have freedom of choice and we have freedom. We, you know, we can reason as human beings and all these things, right? So we can manage that however we want to. But I think most of the time we're managing it by ignoring it and tamping it down. And I don't think that serves any single person on this planet. And especially it does not serve us. Yeah. So I would, I mean, especially for people who already have a complicated relationship with their reproduction, be it like they have very painful periods. Um, they have a history of abuse or trauma. Um, they have a lot of shame around their sexuality. This is actually a way to help you tap into that and come to a better relationship with yourself it's not going to be easy (laughs) necessarily. It could be, it really depends. I don't want to sugarcoat anything, but bringing mindfulness to a part of yourself that feels like too much or feels scary. I believe in my belief set that is only to your benefit. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it also, 
makes me feel stronger when I know those things too. When Mm -hmm. I know when I, and that's, I guess maybe that's just me too. Like when I'm educated on something, I feel more confident. I feel more like willing to talk about it, willing to stand up for it and just all aspects of life. And so talking about something or excuse me, knowing and being confident about something that maybe isn't talked about a lot, but is an everyday part of our life could help people just feel more confident in more things that they do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So I know that we're a little, we had some technical difficulties. So we're a little over the time that I slotted you for, I know you're really busy, um, but I had a couple questions in the, and then we can close up, I promise, but about just the menstrual cycle after we have children, um, like what are, some of those changes that are normal, like what happens after we have a baby? I know there's like obviously that intense time where we experience a lot of bleeding and then they say like, oh, give it a couple months and your period will go back to normal. Um, why is that happening? What should we expect? All the goods. Yeah. So it's probably more than we can get into in this time period, but just to say, Um, of course, pregnancy is a huge hormonal event for the body. And during pregnancy, you're producing huge, huge amounts of hormones, which I also say like, that's why the pill and pregnancy aren't like a good metaphor for each other. Cause when you're on the pill, you have a super low level of natural hormones. Whereas during pregnancy, like you have all the hormones. Mm -hmm. Um, so you have that experience. And then once you give birth, you have a huge drop in hormones, right? Cause the you no longer are pregnant, you no longer need the placenta. You basically, you produce like very, very, very low levels of estrogen and progesterone after pregnancy. And they're being suppressed through prolactin um, and oxytocin, I believe. Um, So those through the process of breastfeeding and just the process of like what happens normally after pregnancy. So you, like you, like you said, you have that period of lochia after birth, like, so, you know, just that blood that happens. And then it really depends, right? So everyone's cycle and everyone's experience of their cycle is very different based on their um, biochemical makeup. So for some people, with pregnancy too, the other thing to note is like whether or not you're breastfeeding. And so that will play a huge role in what happens with your period and when it returns, essentially. Your return to fertility depends on a lot on breastfeeding and on time. So you could, your period after your menstrual cycle, after giving birth for the first few months, like definitely like the first six months, but perhaps longer than that first 12 months, um, can be really any kind of thing. It, it can be, um, it can go right back to normal. You know, that six month mark, if you've been breastfeeding, um, if you haven't been breastfeeding, it can go back to normal much quicker than that. Um, but normal could also have shifted. Some people experience if they've had painful menstruation prior to pregnancy, sometimes that improves after pregnancy. But that being said, if you did have some hormonal irregularities prior to pregnancy, those could continue afterwards. It really depends. Um, sometimes uh, women will, or pregnant people will experience uh, thyroid issues during mm. pregnancy or postpartum. And so the thyroid is responsible for, it plays a role in every single hormonal process in your body. So if there's something wrong with your thyroid, there will definitely be something wrong with your period. So if you suddenly, if you don't have period, like if it's been, you know, six months or, you know, up close to 12 months 
and you still haven't had a period and, you know, your breastfeeding has kind of waned a little bit, I would definitely get your thyroid checked. I mean, there's lots of reasons to get your thyroid checked, but, you know, having really scant periods, having absent periods, those are two of the things that could potentially potentially be there. Um, so that could be playing a role. Um, but yeah, like I said, with breastfeeding, so breastfeeding prolactin, which is stimulated by the suckling during breastfeeding by the infant, um, will suppress your production of estrogen, which then suppresses ovulation. So some people, like if you're fully breastfeeding there, have you ever heard of the lactation amenorrhea method? No. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's a method of fertility awareness. It's like our natural birth control method. And it's very, I mean, people, it, it really depends on the person. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd fully, fully rely on it, but it is a method. And the rules are basically like, if you are fully breastfeeding, so you're nursing on demand, you're nursing frequently, you're nursing throughout the night, um, the baby doesn't have pacifiers or a bottle and you're not pumping, nothing like that. Um, and the baby is less than six months old and you have not gotten your period, you can expect yourself to be, um, you know, like, infertile essentially. So there's like a 98% effective method efficacy of avoiding pregnancy if those mm. conditions are met. Now there's definitely people <laughs> who, you know, like the, the term Irish twins, which I don't think we should use anymore, but you know, like you have, there's definitely people who have a baby and then get pregnant right away. Like yes. that happens as well. Um, there are other people who don't have that experience. So everyone's chemical makeup is really different. Um, but just to say, so breastfeeding will totally impact your return to fertility because it's suppressing the hormones. But at a certain point, and a lot of people find it's around like that six month mark, um, you'll start to see like either you'll have a period or you'll just start to see more mucus production. And then, you know, in the following months, you'll probably get your period back. It might be different. Like you might have really short cycles at first. That would be really normal. So you, you feel like maybe you're getting two periods a month at first or something like that. Um, that would be within the range of what we'd expect to see, but over time they should return to, um, more normal functioning. Okay. Um, yeah. So, and if you feel like at any point you're like, okay, this is odd, this is different. That's when you're like, okay, you need to go see somebody because there, yes, your period looks different after pregnancy, but not for super long periods of time. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely cases of people who don't get their period back for like two years, but I think generally wow. speaking, that would be like, if you're breastfeeding, if you're not breastfeeding though, and you're not seeing your period come back or you're not seeing signs of ovulation come back, I would definitely, um, go and have that looked at. Um, but with breastfeeding, it can just be a little bit funkier, um, okay. because of how the hormones interplay. But generally most people will expect to have like a semi-normal cycle return within like 12 months postpartum. Okay. And then is there a time when like, like, cause when you say normal, that's an interesting yeah. <laughs> thing when what it comes it to, to periods. Like when we say like returns back to normal, we mean like frequency and pain level. Yeah. So it's a really good question. So I'd say it's like normal to you. 
So okay. when, as someone who spends a lot of time looking at the menstrual cycle, we do have some parameters of what makes a healthy menstrual cycle. Um, and so the length of your entire cycle, so from, you know, the first day of your period to your next period, that length, like the entirety of the menstrual cycle is one indicator, but it's not like the best indicator of overall health. But just to say a healthy cycle would typically be between 26 days and 35 days. And so you'd normally have like most of the time your entire cycle is that length. Um, that's not the only, only indicator, like I said, but generally if we see cycles that are shorter than that or longer than that, there's something else off. But like 26 to 35 would be a range. I'd say that's healthy. Now, what we also want to look at is like your, the quality of the menses, right? The quality of your period. So how much are you bleeding? How many days are you bleeding? Um, what's the pain associated with that? What does the blood look like? A healthy bleed would be between three and five days or three and seven. Although like if you're getting up to seven at even that, I'd say like that could potentially be an issue, but you know, five days on average, you want to go from like a heavy to a light or heavy to medium to light bleeding. Um, you know, a bright red color is considered like a very healthy color to see. And again, like I said earlier, like a minimal amount of pain, it's normal to have like a little bit of cramping. Like you're like aware that you're having your period. That's fine. But if there's anything that's like debilitating in either pain level or mood or fatigue, things like that, those are definitely reasons to go and get further help. And you can go to your OBGYN and depending on, you know, the kind of practitioner you have, they might have something to help you, but oftentimes they're not the best people to go to for wellness around our menstrual cycles. Unfortunately, mm. I would recommend um, a holistic reproductive health practitioner like myself. Um, I'm a little bit biased, but so that or um, an acupuncturist or um, so a Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine doctor, they have a different way of viewing the menstrual cycle, which is in a positive health affirming way. So they have more tools to help you improve it or like a naturopath or an herbalist. Typically those people will have, those practitioners will have a little bit more useful information for you to implement. Um, so, you know, start there. So like the length of your period and how much you're bleeding, if you're bleeding too little. So if you're bleeding like two days or less or three days or less, and it's very light, that's a sign that something off is off as well, especially if like it's changed. Mm -hmm. And it, likewise, if you're bleeding seven days or longer, that would also be a sign that something is off, especially if it's like heavier bleeding. If you have a period that like kind of comes on and then stops and then comes back and then stops and then comes back, that's also a sign something could be off um, as is spotting. So if you have like spotting before your period, that typically is a sign that you might have some low progesterone, but you know, there could be a variety of issues at play. Um, so you have that. So you want to look at like the health of the actual bleeding. And then you want to look at the quality of your cervical mucus. So you want to have ideally, we'd say like the healthy range, the range of normal for cervical mucus would be anywhere from three to nine days. But on average, it's about six days for most people. Okay. Most of those days will be like creamy, lotiony type stuff. But you want at least one day, it can be more, but at least one day that's like raw egg white. So we call that peak type mucus. So that raw egg white mucus indicates that you're very, very close to or ovulating um, and is a sign that your hormones get high enough for you to ovulate and to produce that like that clear, super fertile mucus. So you want to look at that. 
And then the last part is the number of days from ovulation until your next period or the post-ovulatory phase or the luteal phase. And so that phase is going to be constant from cycle to cycle. Ovulation can only happens one time. It only happens once, but it can move around. It's very sensitive to stress and illness and um, travel. It, it can be a very sensitive little beast. Um, especially right now, you know, we're recording this in the time of coronavirus. Um, yes. Everyone might be having really weird periods, and that's because ovulation is very sensitive. So you can ovulate earlier or later in a cycle. Oftentimes when we have a late period, like a missed or not missed, but like a late period and we know we're not pregnant, it's not because our period is late. It's because ovulation was late. So ovulation can move around a little bit. Most of the time it'll happen around the same time but it can move. But once you ovulate, there's a set number of days until you get your next period. And that's due to um, the functioning of, I mean, it's whole thing we don't have to get into right now, but essentially you create, after you ovulate, you create this little gland called the corpus luteum and it produces progesterone. And it would continue producing progesterone if you got pregnant, but if you don't get pregnant, it just naturally dies. And that causes a drop in hormones, which then triggers menstruation. So that phase is somewhere between 12 and 16 days. So there's like a lot of things there, right? So we're looking at like, how many days are you bleeding? What's the quality of your bleeding? How many days do you have cervical mucus? What's the quality of the cervical mucus? And what's the length of your luteal phase? And you don't have to keep all those things in your head. You can Google this. You can reach out to me. Mm -hmm. But those are the things we're looking at. And so if all those things, like let's say you're bleeding five days, it's bright blood, no, like little to no cramping heavy, medium, light, it goes away. You have some days of nothing happening. Then you have some cervical mucus days. You have like a day or two of egg white mucus. Um, it goes away. And then, you know, 12 days later, you get your period. That would be a super healthy cycle. Even if that cycle itself was like 27 days or 35 days, like that would be fine. The 28 day cycle, a lot of people do have 28 day cycles, but it's not the only thing. It, it's, you can have a variety of lengths of the cycle. And that's not a problem. Wow. I wish you could see my note page right now. <laughs> I'm like, how fast can I write? It's, it's amazing. I'm glad I asked the question of normal because as I'm writing all this down, you know, your period after becoming and pregnant and having a baby might go back to normal. But what you just outlined for us, we might have not, never had a normal period. Absolutely. And so thank you for taking the time to do that. I really appreciate it. I feel You're like, welcome. I feel like I'm excited to go down this path of <laughs> fertility awareness because all this stuff, I just feel like I, I've always known, like we all mm -hmm. know how long we know what ovulating is. We know how long in between we know, okay, if I'm on my period, I might be fertile. I might not be fertile right before my period. I am really fertile. Like there, there's like things we've heard and picked up, I think, over the span of life and becoming sexually active and talking to a doctor or reading online or hearing from a friend. But obviously what you've just outlined for us is that all of our bodies, yes, work similarly, but also are our own bodies and mm -hmm. have different things come up. Like there might be more stress in somebody's life or less stress in somebody's life. And so things can change. And so by knowing our body, we can be less alarmed and just more educated mm -hmm. as we go on this thing called life and absolutely meet our vagina and stop <laughs> leaving her in the dark and let her come yes. out and play. 
Yes. I mean, look, if you're someone posted this on Instagram, but I'm going to reiterate it. If you're home now, social distancing or quarantining and you have a vulva that you haven't looked at, I would really encourage you to get out a hand mirror and just like check it out. It's not yes. going to bite you. Just like get in there. It's also a great time. Like if you're like, I've been curious about fertility awareness and you suddenly have a bunch of time on your hands. Like this is a great time to explore fertility awareness. <laughs> yes, yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, Vienna, I cannot thank you enough for spending the time with me and going over the time and being so patient with my te technical difficulties. No I appreciate that. Um, and honestly, just giving all of us this information, this has been amazing and eye-opening and you're obviously very well educated in the vagina which is why you are called the cunt sultan absolutely well thank so. you so much for having me i was really it's really been a pleasure to talk with you and you know talk about my favorite topics of so you're just giving me an outlet to continue to talk so i appreciate it thank you so much yes of course um, um, and it, i do oh, oh, go, sorry, ahead. go ahead no please so i was just gonna say so i do work with uh, people one-on-one -on -one, um again, time of quarantine, I work primarily with people remotely. So I can offer sessions directly to you in your home without anyone having to leave. And I will be offering um, group sessions as well coming up in the next few months. But if you feel inspired and you'd like to jump on this train, I am willing and able and happy to take you on as a fertility awareness client. Awesome. Yeah, that's literally what I was just going to ask if, where <laughs> people can go to find out this information. So I'll put a link below to your website. Yeah. Um, so people can go there to find you. So what is that website? So it's thecuntsultant.com. So C-U-N-T-S-U-L-T-A-N-T.com. Um, that's my website. You can also find me on Instagram. It's a little bit different, um, but it's thecuntsultant, but cunt is spelled with a V. So it looks like cuntsultant, the cuntsultant. Um, but if you put it in. I'm sure you'll find me. Um, yeah. So those are the two main places I'm at. You can always email me from my website um, as well. Uh, yeah. Th that's where I am. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I wish you guidance in this weird climate that we're in. <laughs> you as well. Again, thank you so much. Yes, of course. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Now, if you're hooked, you can subscribe to this podcast, follow along on social media at The Mama Stories, or visit the website, mamastories.com. And mamas, I love you. <laughs>